HMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show State Representative Mindy Dom, the representative for the 3rd Hampshire District. Representative Dom, thanks so much for being with us today. I'd love to get your perspective on, well, first, what the legislature has accomplished in this part of 2023. And then I want to talk to you about what we should be looking forward to and anticipate with regard to legislative actions in 2024. Let's start with 2023. A lot of criticism of the legislature for not having been more proactive. I know that many legislators actually disagree with that Boston Globe analysis. What's your view? I also disagree with that. And good morning. And good morning to you, Bill and Buzz and listeners. Um, And before we go any further, I just want to wish everybody a hopeful and happy holiday season and a great new year, because we may not get to that. And uh, timing of the show makes me want to say that. But I, <laughs> I, I, I completely disagree with that characterization of the legislature. I think it feeds a narrative that's not accurate and is actually very unhelpful, not to legislators per se, but I actually think to residents to be able to understand the legislative process and be able to effectively advocate and participate in it. So I think, you know, have we done everything that people want in this calendar year 2023 probably not but the session is a two-year session and it really starts to move in the second part of that session which is this year 2024 um but i also think it it does kind of a harmful it has a harmful impact to say and to perpetuate this idea that the legislature has done nothing because for many people in the legislature but also outside the legislature advocates they've been working really hard to craft and move and advance not just legislation, but awareness and motivation around that legislation. And to negate that or dismiss it as a lack of activity, I just think it's insulting and it's wrong. Um, And it also says it doesn't matter if you advocate because that's not what what we're really counting as civic activity, which I also think is wrong. Pass legislation into law is a wonderful and beautiful thing that can happen. But all the activity that leads up to that and all the political organizing that goes into that, all the learning that goes into that, all the connections and relationships that get formed as part of that, I also think is an incredibly valuable piece of democracy. So um, I I disagree with that um, completely. Plus, you have to really kind of factor in the specifics of what we work with in Boston. So um, we don't limit legislators to how many bills they can file. I heard recently that there are some states that actually limit, you know, uh, legislators. They have to prioritize and, like, pick their top three bills. We do not do that. And as a result, in Massachusetts, there are close to 7,000 bills that were filed in 2023 for us to learn about, discuss, figure out what's the best way to move ahead, have a public hearing, and potentially enact into law by the end of um, the session, which will be around July 2024. That's a lot of activity to happen for 7,000 bills. And so the first thing that happens is hearings have to be scheduled. According to the House rules, every piece of legislation that gets filed gets a public hearing. Um, That doesn't mean it gets its own public hearing. Like we have to have 7,000 days of public hearings. Usually bills are grouped with other bills on a similar topic. But that, it means that every bill needs to get a public hearing, and that's not only an organizing feat, 
But that's really, I mean, organizing in terms of internally for the legislature, but also externally for advocates to mobilize supporters, get led, get um, testimony submitted, have people participate in those hearings. And so I think for a lot of legislators in 2023 so far, we've been busy with either participating in hearings because we're all members of committees that have hearings, leading those hearings for people who are chair people. Um, of those committees or participating in those hearings, so, either as witnesses or letting our constituents know, hey, there's a hearing coming up that you're interested in. Here's the information. How can I help you engage with that? I'm so, sorry, Bill. I Representative Dom, no, I, I want to, uh, there's another aspect of this that I think is worth uh, noting, and that is that the hearings on bills are prerequisites to actually having votes on bills, and they are a requirement, a necessity, in order to craft the language of bills, which may be either inconsistent in some ways and or be complementary in other ways and to put them together as a legislative package. So that's one part I would like you to comment on. The the, The second is that there is something about deadlines that focuses the mind. And the legislature is not at its deadline because, as you point out, it's a two-year session. So why don't you take those two thoughts uh, individually, if you would. First, how the legislation gets crafted and how different bills get put together. And maybe you want to comment on omnibus bills as well. And then I'd like Mm -hmm. to get to this question of things happen at the end in the legislative session. It's just the way the world works. Well, I love this question because they kind of affect each other, right? So I think you know, the legislation is crafted. So legislators may work with advocates to submit a bill, but once it gets submitted, it's subjected to vetting. And the vetting happens at the committee level. It happens at several levels, but it initially happens at the committee level through the hearing process. So a lot of times during a hearing, people will make, and I hope they do this, because filing a bill is really just starting a conversation on an issue, on a problem, and trying to suggest or propose a solution. It may not, and in some ways probably should not, be the end of the conversation. It should be the beginning, and the hearing continues it. And I've seen a lot of bills, even in my brief time in the legislature, change because of the hearing process and change for the better, have become better bills. Last session, um, I was the acting chair of the Environment, Natural Resources, and Agriculture Committee for about six months, and I saw firsthand how our committee got some bills that were sort of like, well, this isn't going to really work, and this probably has no chance of passing. But if we tweaked it here, and then we worked with the person, with the legislator who filed it, and the advocates who were supporting it to sort of redraft the bill to a bill that met the same objectives, but either was better legally or better politically or better policy-wise, and ultimately then advanced bills that I think were better than the original bill, which is what should happen. The conversation, the legislative conversation, should take in the concerns of the public and make legislation better and sort of uh, more appropriate and more effective. Um, And if it doesn't do that, then we're doing something wrong. So that takes time. You know, that means that a bill isn't going to be, no matter how good a person thinks a bill is on Monday when they're filed, it shouldn't immediately zip the road. There should be some way that it gets subjected to the public's um, response to it. It shouldn't just be legislators doing their thing. So, Representative um, Dom, let, let, me, let yep. me interrupt you there if I might, because the uh, 
the, the I don't know if the word wisdom is right, but at least the collective judgment is that mm-hmm. most bills on their first journey through the legislative process are not passed. And for a bill mm-hmm. to actually uh, become law often takes at least two and often three or sometimes even more legislative sessions in order for the bill to be considered uh, vetted and subject to legislative judgment. Is, is that a fair statement? You know, in my so in my short life in the legislature, I'm going into my you know, I was not elected in 2018, started in 2019. I've seen both. I've seen bills that their first session have needed to continue to be refined. Remember, there's a very quick time. It's two years. So if something isn't like what they call fully baked, right, or ready to go, ready for showtime, it's going to be sort of you've got to come back the next year and kind of learn the lessons of what you missed out on the first year that didn't get the bill passed and apply them in the second year. That could be you need a better coalition of support. You need to change a section. You need to change this language, whatever it is. But I've also seen bills that have come up very quickly in response to urgent situations and have been passed. And I'll give you a couple examples. Um, the, the bill that we passed last session on reproductive health care and gender-affirming health care was in direct response to what we saw both at the Supreme Court with the Dobbs decision and what we saw states doing in response to the Dobbs decision. And that bill, although it, the preparation for that bill and the planning for that bill did not start overnight, that bill moved very quickly because it was an urgent situation. I also saw that happen this year with the gun safety bill. And that, you know, that was a bill that I I personally feel I I voted for that bill. I love that bill. And I love the process that was taken for that bill by the House chair, Mike Day, where he had public listening sessions, about 11 of them, across the whole state discussing different aspects of gun safety that needed to be addressed in response to the Supreme Court's decision and then came up with a bill that responded to those concerns, but also responded to the decision to protect Massachusetts' um, sort of objectives and goals. Well, Representative Dom, I, I, I understand that, and I think the House should take credit for that, and the chair should take credit for that. I would point out the Senate hasn't passed it. We don't have a bill for the governor right. to sign yet. Right. I can't speak for the Senate, but in terms of like what you were saying, though, Bill, like how long does it take a bill and do all bills yep. get like put aside the first session? Not all bills do. Um, but I think it, I, what I've seen is that external sort of influence can affect the speed with which a bill needs to go through and ultimately does go through, which is a good thing. Well, let me ask you so this. I, let me ask you this, because the uh, legislature was uh, uh I think its reputation was tarnished um, by the inability to pass a supplemental budget, which got a lot of coverage statewide. And I think a lot of that was prompted and instigated by the Boston Globe's coverage. But that said, uh, it did take a long time for the legislature to pass, enact a supplemental budget, which everyone agreed, including the legislature, that, well, this absolutely needed to be done. And it just... It wasn't dawdle and delay, but it also wasn't uh, an aggressive legislative movement to pass a budget that needed to be passed. Your thoughts about that? Well, I, I, you know, extremely painful delay, particularly for people who were waiting for their um, raises in that supplemental that were already approved and that they should have already had. 
You know, I represent Amherst. Many of my constituents are affiliated with the UMass system, and we're waiting for raises, which I am happy to say their retroactive payments and their increases should all be in their paychecks for this pay cycle happening today. So if you're listening to this, you were due a raise, you were due a reimbursement and a retroactive check to July 1, and you don't get in today's paycheck, please call my office. We've been told by UMass that they are making sure that everybody has it today. So that's the good news on that. Um, I think that that was part of the problem with the supplemental is that we had a couple of different kinds of things in the supplemental. We had approved raises, which I advocated should, if we could have to do them separately. And we had policy money, which had disagreement between the House and the Senate. And my understanding is that's what sort of um, slowed down the process, but unfortunately to the detriment of the people that were waiting for their raises. And many people, many, many people don't have the luxury of saying, well, I'll wait for that retroactive check and that will make it all better. They live paycheck to paycheck, even working for UMass. And so making people wait for that, I think it was incredibly painful and disappointing. On the other hand, I'm very happy that the ultimate supplemental that was passed obviously included those raises, which I don't think we're ever in disagreement, but it also included funding for um, homeless shelters and a homeless policy for the migrants that live up to Massachusetts' goals to take care of people. And um, so I'm happy that that piece made it through into the supplemental, that we funded that, that program at the amount that was needed, that we put some strings on that money because we want to see some planning that happens, that we wanted to make sure there was an overflow shelter, that people were put on the street or in mass dot offices. And I'm very happy that that piece was included, but I think it was just, we need to do the budget in a different way so that we need to take this uh, experience and kind of figure out, so how can we make sure that raises don't get caught into that policy discussion in the future, that we view them as separate um, and that they be dealt with separately legislatively. That's what I hope we can do. We are speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. She's the representative for the 3rd Hampshire District. That's Amherst. And now two precincts in Granby. I understand Pelham is no longer within your bailiwick representative due to redistricting. I appreciate what you've been telling us about what the legislature has and has not accomplished in 2023. We look forward to speaking with the representative about what we can look forward to and whether Massachusetts will address a crisis in housing in 2024. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Get local business news, trends, and information. Be in the know with Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Business West connects the region's business community in print, online, and in person. Business West is published bi-weekly. Plus, get daily e-newsletters. Business West annual awards programs spotlight excellence. Healthcare heroes, women of impact, difference makers, and 40 under 40. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. Rush Doctors, Short Appointments. Is anyone listening? I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson, and I'm excited to announce that Atkinson Family Practice is now offering concierge medicine in addition to our main practice. An annual fee gets you access to an experienced, board-certified doctor who has fewer patients so they can devote more time to you. Atkinson Concierge Medicine. If your health concerns need more time, coordination, and advocacy, concierge might be right for you. Visit atkinsonfamilypractice.com slash concierge. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Sam the Minuteman is once again hosting his rockin' New Year's Eve party on Saturday, December 30th as the UMass men's basketball team takes on Siena at 1 p.m. Young UMass fans can enjoy poster making on the concourse, a photo booth, a halftime ball drop, and post-game layups on the court. Youth tickets for the game are just five bucks. Bring in the new year a day early with Massachusetts men's basketball by visiting umassathletics.com slash tickets. Go you! You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Mindy Dom, the representative from the 3rd Hampshire District, that's Amherst, and Precincts 1 and 2A of Granby. Representative, we have been discussing what the legislature accomplished and didn't in 2023. I'd like to know about your priorities for 2024, and in particular, whether housing is one of them and whether we actually can anticipate action by the legislature on housing. Thank you, Bill. Um, Housing is definitely on my list, and I think it's on everybody's list because the governor filed this incredible housing bond, which is not only lots of money, over $4 billion, but lots of different kinds of programs to spend that money on, but she also included policy pieces in there. So that sort of opens up the discussion for um, what do we like about that bill? What do we think needs to be improved in that bill? And what do we want? What do we think is missing from that bill? And that's how I've been actually talking with constituents about it is read the bill. Here's the fact sheet and find out what you think you like, what you support and what you think needs to be changed and what you think needs to be changed. Please let me know so that that can be kind of that can inform and in lots of cases dictate my advocacy around that because that housing bill will get a hearing. Um, it may, the ultimate housing bond may look different than what Governor Healy has suggested, but that will only happen through the hearing process when people start to pick at it and say, we like this part, we don't like that part. So I think everyone knows housing is a crisis. It's a crisis not just because people don't have a place to live and that causes a, human, uh, a crisis in humanity, but it's also a crisis for economic development. It's a crisis for the state because people are leaving the state because they can't afford housing. It's a crisis for people who are retired because they can't afford to downsize. It's a crisis for young people because they can't afford an apartment. Um, I think depending on where you live in the state, the the factors that make that crisis worse differ. Um, Certainly Amherst, a town that I represent, has its own set of factors and influences a lot of that controlled by the student um, influx, but also by the lack of production. So um, I think we're going to see housing and we're going to see how we're going to raise revenue for housing as a major topic in the last part of this session, hopefully also going into the next session. Like, I hope it's not just a one and done that we continue to revisit it because I don't think we're going to fix it just with a one and done. Um, I just want to say one other thing about housing. Recently, I went on a tour with the Amherst Housing Authority and I specifically wanted to look 
and understand why there were vacant units in the housing authority. There was a statewide report that said that there were all these vacant units, um, which is painful to hear about because we know there are people who need those units. And I learned a lot. And part of what I learned was that the maintenance that's required to bring apartments back online for people is often hampered by the fact that there isn't enough money for maintenance in housing authorities or for personnel to do the maintenance that's necessary. These maintenance workers at the Amherst Housing Authority are doing their best to keep up with what they need to do, but there are not enough of them. And so we need to really look at how we can use the bond to strengthen the ability of housing authorities to make sure that the units they currently have available are online and are healthy and, you know, sort of green and don't present any hazard, health hazard or climate hazard. So yes, I think housing is definitely going to be on my agenda and the legislature's agenda. The other thing I'm very happy about is that I'm hearing that there may be another climate omnibus bill, which is critically important. This is where um, the legislature takes um, looks at the, a topic like climate and then says, okay, so what are the bills that exist about this that my colleagues have filed? And then looks to create a bill that's sort of an all-encompassing bill, which often happens. So like that's the other piece of... Um, the legislature is not effective is if you look, for example, at the gun safety bill, that probably represented at least 20 bills that had been filed. So it's only one bill that gets passed, but it, it included and was composed by lots of bills. And I think that's what we did the last couple of sessions with climate. And I think we're going to do that again this year. The chair, the House chair of the committee that looks at this issue is Jeff Roy who I think is one of the most skilled and knowledgeable legislators. Um, and he is a really sort of, I want to call him a quilt maker, but that doesn't really describe what he does. But he really has a way of looking at all the bills that have been filed on a given topic, whether it be climate or he did it before in higher ed or in healthcare, and assembling them together, sewing them together and knitting them together so that they create this really powerful omnibus bill. And so I'm hopeful that we're going to have another one from his committee so we can continue to try to reach the climate goals that the state has set. But other things that are on the agenda is, you know, we need to look at education. We need to continue to look at how much we're putting into from um, roads and sidewalks. This is what I'm hearing from my towns. Early childhood still need to help those folks. Um, the cost of pharmaceuticals has to go down. We have to look at how the state can do that. And I want to put another thing on the list for me, and that's um, food security and ending hunger in Massachusetts and reparations. And if I can speak just briefly on both of those. Um, so in terms of food security, um, you know, we did this great thing this year where we put universal school meals into every school as a result of the um, fair share amendment. So the kids we don't need, so the kids and families don't have to pay for those meals if they want to get them right. at school. They're just free right. at schools. Okay, got it. And Thank they're you. free for everybody. So nobody has to say, I need a free meal. Everybody gets a free meal. So it also it not only feeds kids and that relieves economic pressures on families, but it also removes stigma from people who need to have those meals, which is huge in terms of just community, society, humanity. Um, we need to do more with food security and supporting our food pantries. They have taken um, a real hit during COVID in terms of increased demand, um, which they are continuing to sort of try to meet with reduced support. And we can't expect that to go on. So I've been given a lot of thought 
to how we can specifically help the entire um, what's called the emergency food network um, and treat it similarly to how we treat the emergency housing network, where maybe we stop not only or not stop, but we not only fund food, which Massachusetts does, but maybe we need to start also funding personnel and program support in addition to capital or things. Representative, um, I'm, not sure if, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut go you ahead, off. Please. Well, this is Buzz, Representative Mindy Dahl. So, hi. <laughs> so here we are at the intersection of 23 and 24, and you just uh, listed a really honorable, I'm so supportive of all of those issues that you just raised, and I know that you uh, are all, you have a very long list of priorities that you think the legislature should attack. My question is, as the next year unfolds, I imagine you'll be adding to that list. How does that process work when you have things in the pipeline, priorities have already set for yourself and the legislature, and now either constituents or something that you observe, how does that thing keep morphing, that list? Yeah, that's an interesting question because based on like what uh, Bill asked before about deadlines, right? So the deadline for the session is the end of July, um, but the deadline for bills to come out of committee is the first week of February. That's like, what, five, six weeks away. So if there's legislation in the pipeline, that's when we start to look at and say, so what can I prioritize? What can I try to move either by itself, which is very unlikely, or if there's another legislative vehicle coming by, how can I, what bills of mine that have advanced from committee can I hook on to that caboose as it goes by? Because every bill sort of needs a vehicle. Imagine chutes and ladders, um, the, the board game for kids. That's like the legislative process or Candyland. The first thing is getting it out of committee. But when it gets out of committee, it doesn't automatically come to a vote. It has another committee it has to go to, which is Ways and Means. And then you need to get it out of Ways and Means to be able to put it onto the floor for a vote or attach it to another bill. So you have to prioritize, in a way, at least for me, what bills do you have that have the greatest chance of either being connected to another legislative vehicle or being attached to another bill? And that prioritization for me, comes from not just what I am attached to and what my district wants and what constituents have been advocating for, but I also rely on colleagues who are um, more knowledgeable and more experienced to sort of show me or talk to me about what needs to be done in different ways to make bills more possible to move. And so those are the conversations that happen. And we are going to have to leave it there. Representative Mindy Dom, we wish you the very best for this new year and the happiest of holidays to you and yours. And even with our scheduling on this show, we did manage to make sure we included that. And I'm going to give my grandchildren <laughs> the game, Beacon Hill. <laughs> well, my, my office is working on that, so um, I'll let you know if we finish uh, doing our version of it. Not shoots and Ladders, Hills and Valleys with Mindy Dom. <laughs> Appreciate Happy it. Happy New Year to both of you. And to you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Pedestrian safety is on the mind of Northampton City Councilors. The councilors discussed the issue at their meeting last night and unanimously voted to accept a gift of $200,000 from Smith College to further improve pedestrian safety in the area. Northampton Mayor Jean-Louise Shera. Thank them for this gift of $200,000 to support the design and the initial construction costs and construction administration for roadway improvements um, in this area. 
Two more pedestrians were struck by vehicles just last week, and Cat Queenie of Amherst is wondering why the process is taking so long to make the streets safer. It's great that the city is working with Smith to take action now, but was it really necessary for two people to be seriously injured over a year apart before we could make that happen? The mayor's office and officials at the college say they share a deep commitment to take decisive, well-informed action for the safety of the community. More than 50 Northampton High School students staged an early walkout of school on Tuesday in protest of the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, demanding a permanent ceasefire to the conflict and strongly criticizing Israel's actions in Gaza since the war's outbreak, saying it was tantamount to genocide. First Night Northampton is back Sunday with even more performers and venues participating. In total, 22 separate stages in 20 different locations will host events. Events begin at noon with a focus on kid and family-friendly events, including two sessions at the Academy of Music by the young acrobats and circus performers who train at Show Circus Studio in East Hampton. The traditional downtown fireworks take place at 615. For today, it'll be mostly sunny, highs 34 to 38. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 16 to 22. And the electric Saturday, mostly cloudy, highs in the lower 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 1015 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Maybe you still have your copy of a favorite long-ago book, like I do, about Mickey Mantle, signed by my Uncle Bill, Hanukkah, 1958. A book can make a lasting impression. Something Someday is the new picture book by the presidential inaugural poet Amanda Gorman. Get it at Broadside Bookshop. For middle grade and elementary readers, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Chalice of the Gods. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store, then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. When inflation is high, we're all pros at finding creative ways to save. Yeah, whether it's driving the extra mile for lower gas prices or grocery shopping on sale days, saving money has never been so important. That's why we have to tell you about our new favorite way to save, Upside. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or dines out. With Upside, we're not getting slammed by inflated prices because we get cash back on every purchase. To get started, download the free Upside app. Just use our promo code ARMSTRONG and get 25 cents or more back for every gallon on your first tank of gas next claim an offer for whatever you're buying on upside check in at the business pay as usual with a credit or debit card and get paid upside users are earning more than a million dollars every week that's probably why they have a 4.8 star rating on the app store download the free upside app and use promo code armstrong to get 25 cents or more back for every gallon on your first tank of gas download the free upside app just use our promo code armstrong that's the promo code armstrong you're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. Welcome back. We are joined by Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. President Page has a ring to it. How about telling us what you think the MTA has accomplished or sees as accomplishments here in Massachusetts in 2023? And then I want to get to what you are looking forward to in 2024. First, 
things to celebrate this year? Well, I'll, I'll tell you some things to celebrate. I do have a few of the 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 coal from this. <laughs> a past few pieces year. of coal for the stocking. Got it. So uh, look, what best things? Um, there's a whole bunch of things. It's been ex- exciting, and I'll start with January 1, 2023. That's when the fair share amendment went into effect. That's the millionaire's tax, the change to our constitution that we passed in November of 2022, went into effect January 1, first day of the new year, 2023, um, and it's taxing the very richest a little more, and we are now seeing the results of that in getting closer to debt-free community college, increased enrollment there, just this week, uh, more than $100 million went across out to communities across the state for for transportation and other local, you know, um, sidewalk repairs, road repairs, all new money because of fair share, universal school meals, every kid, every town, all the time will get meals for free, no questions asked. That's because of the fair share amendment, and it goes on and on, and that's year number one. That's the first billion dollars we expect. The other piece of good news related to fair shares, it turns out we were right, uh, which is that it's going to generate closer to $2 billion a year this year and every year. So that's a big, huge good news side. I will say the 135,000 signatures we gathered uh, for the ballot initiative to uh, eliminate the use of MCAS to deny a student a diploma. We gathered those in eight weeks between middle of September and middle of November, an incredible effort, more than any other ballot initiative this cycle. And so that ballot initiative will be on the uh, fall, the November 2024 ballot, unless the legislature does the right thing and passes our our bill, our ballot initiative as a piece of legislation. Um, well, that's we, a pretty good year. That's a pretty good year, yeah. Max. Yeah, it's a pretty good year. I didn't even even mention um, the strikes that brought us for the first time um, getting very close and in some ways achieving living wages for paraprofessionals. You know, all the people we we that people praise and school committees praise all the time, but they make poverty wages. Well, in Andover, they went on strike for three days and um, those paraprofessionals by the end of that contract, we'll be making $40,000 a year up from 25. That's just one example. It's not nearly enough, but it is huge boosts. And we're seeing that all over in Woburn, um, where members went on strike and in other very powerful campaigns, contract campaigns, where people are focusing on the needs of the lowest paid. Have those strikes in a number, but obviously not a majority or close to it, of school systems, has that had a ripple effect where other school systems said, okay, we've seen what happens there. We're going to be, uh, how about how to put this, more attentive to this collective bargaining process. 100% true. And because what they're seeing is the bottom line is members saying, enough. We've been talking about helping lift up the wages of the lowest paid for years. Hasn't happened. So now we're taking another tack. And North Andover, settled a very fine contract amicably i mean it was an intense contract campaign but they worked it out and we'll see huge gains for those members including bill i want to note as a reminder to the public that the paid family medical leave that the state passed several years ago which is amazing every worker in the state 
gets access to really extensive paid family medical leave. Um, but guess what? It doesn't apply to municipal workers. So our educators who are two thirds women do not have access to paid paid parental leave when they, they um, go on leave when they welcome a child into the family. Many of our locals have also fought for two weeks or four weeks or eight weeks now um, as they got in several places. So yes, there's a ripple effect where school committees are saying, all right, I, best, I, I, I guess we should get down to business and actually respond to the real concerns of our educators. Let me just go back for one second to something you just said. I want to make sure I heard it correctly. Municipal workers are not entitled to family medical leave? Exactly. So that law that we passed, remember it was going to be a ballot initiative that MTA worked on with our Raise Up Massachusetts Coalition colleagues, got settled in the legislature. I mean, there was sort of a deal on several items that got made and that bill was implemented, but because we have this local control, they refused to impose it. The legislature refused to impose it on the municipalities. The municipalities, unfortunately, and their mass municipal association pushed back and didn't want to have that happen. So the 200,000 municipal employees do not have access to that. So now we are bargaining and fighting for it one local at a time. It's ridiculous. All right. Let's look forward to 2024. What are you looking forward to or what are educators looking forward to in 2024? So obviously we have these two major campaigns, Bill, and I'll name one other as well. I mean, we have the getting rid of the MCAS as a graduation requirement and generally moving towards a richer, more meaningful way of evaluating, assessing and supporting our schools. So that will either be, be the legislature will do the right thing or we'll, we'll we will go to the ballot in November of 2024. We're also pushing very hard, led by our state Senator Joe Comerford, um, the CHERISH Act, which would provide debt-free public higher education, but also invest in the quality of our institutions, by green buildings, fair pay, and um, job security for our adjunct faculty and student supports. Um, so this is a, this is a kind of a, a blueprint for a truly debt-free and outstanding public higher education system. Those are our two major campaigns, but I wanna lift up um, two other things if I could, Bill. One is uh, the mental health um, situation crisis, I would call it, among our students, but also among our educators. Uh, our, our members have been sounding the alarm that the, the mental health situation and the, and the resultant behaviors are just growing and growing. They started with the pandemic or they, they were augmented by the pandemic, but really this has been a growing crisis for many years that have probably many causes, whether it's social media or growing polarization in the country at large, but there's a lot of reasons why, but we really have to get a handle on and support our students who are, who are hurting mentally. Well, that's a pretty tight and important list. So thank you for sharing that with us, Max Page. As president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, a final word you have for us for, well, this year and this holiday season? Well, I, I know I'm supposed to be really up and I'm excited about our campaigns. I'm also good at having read about more calls for tax cuts. When we celebrate on January 1, the first year of fair share, I am going to resolve to fight any and all rebates to the very wealthiest, which unfortunately this legislature 
passed this year, and we are going to be fervent to stop any more giveaways um, back to the very wealthiest when the when the people voted to tax the wealthiest this um, a year ago. I think we leave it there. Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Thank you so very much. Happy New Year to you both. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Fitting in can really feel like it matters, especially when you're in high school. At the Hartsbrook High School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or using technology as a tool, you can thrive at Hartsbrook High School. And you can thrive academically while being an integral part of a community intentionally focused on belonging. Hartsbrook students take their learning out of the classroom, into nature, into the community, learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook prepares a person to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for themselves and the community. Is Hartsbrook right for your teenager? For parents and caregivers, there's a Discover Hartsbrook High School evening, February 6th. There are visiting days for students, January 23rd and February 6th. Register at hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School, Waldorf Education, Early Childhood through High School on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley. This week's Shock Tuesday is Tavern on the Hill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Tavern on the Hill releases gift certificates for their restaurant on Mount Tom. Tavern on the Hill, barbecue done slow over native oak, brisket, ribs, and pulled pork, plus Tavern's signature salmon, pumpkin tortillaki, and big deck with a view of the Berkshire foothills. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Tavern on the Hill on Mount Tom, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. We continue our conversation with Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page, and we do that because, Buzz, you were speaking with Max while we were off air and had some thoughts you wanted to share. I really do want to share. Uh, Max, So, from time to time I hear someone who's a critic of, well, sometimes it's unionization in general, sometimes it's specifically why are these public employees worried about themselves rather than being the public servants that we hire them to be, and sometimes even directed at the MTA. And I, I just want to say I am so moved the last couple of years in particular, but always, what there's this great congruency with what's in, in the interest of your membership, Max Page, uh, those educators and paraprofessionals and, and, and folks in the penumbra of education that you represent, and the students that we are all focused on serving. Um, there's never there's, there's never a, a divergence in the interest of educating our 
future generations and what's in the interest of the people that work so hard to do just that. So I, as a citizen, as a member, a retiree, as an MTA member, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all you do, and thank you for never forgetting that. It was a beautiful soliloquy because somewhere in the middle of that and your protestations of unadulterated, unadorned love for Max Page, teachers and educators, he dropped the call. Well, he didn't personally, but technology failed us. So it you, was, know, I, you know what? That reminds me of my first prom date. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing happened to me. Well, <laughs> I was talking and then she wasn't there. <laughs> well, that was pretty interesting. But it was very moving. It was indeed. Well, that is very true. It is Bill Newman. Uh, so interesting to that everything from the Cherish Act and the Fair Share Amendment and... and uh, even the right to strike by pe- public employees, um, it is in the interest of our of our of our children, of the very students that we're worried about. So I, I am a huge admirer. Okay, we now have with us Reverend Michael McSherry. We have some moments, and we'd like your refre- reflections, Michael McSherry, on Christmas. Michael McSherry is the senior pastor at Edwards Church here in Northampton. Michael McSherry, talk to us about Christmas. Well, he will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or maybe he won't. Maybe he won't. Bill, I, Bill I, maybe there's a wall surrounding us. We should talk to that. <laughs> well, I, for our listeners who want to actually know what's going on here, we do have Michael McSherry on Skype. We can see him fine. What we can't at the moment is hear him. Michael, why don't, Reverend McSherry, how about you call us? We have a moment here. We'll call. Here's the number. Ready? 413. Oops, Michael is now signaling me. Hang on one second as he writes this down as we go to really old technology, 413-586-7140. Okay, he's, let's see. The Reverend expresses mild exasperation at technology. (laughs) Now it's not so mild. (laughs) Reverend Michael McSherry, thank you for joining us. Uh, a, a day late, but hopefully not a dollar short. Wow, his voice. This is a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> so t- tell us, if you yeah. would, please, your thoughts on, I guess I want to ask you this. You're, you're the reverend, the senior pastor at Edwards Church. What does Christmas mean to you? Uh, Christmas to me means um, so many things, Bill, but the first and foremost is... Um, we're not alone. God is real, um, and God is present in our lives, always arriving, always inviting um, as many humans as will accept God's reality to let the light shine through them, to recognize and be responsible to their own goodness and the goodness of others. And by being receptive and responsible, give birth to more goodness and to magnify it until it's present to everyone. As a pastor, uh, as a Christian, as a leader of a congregation, do you draw distinctions between spiritual Jesus and historical Jesus? Well, I don't have to draw them. They're there. (laughs) And and, um, they're not... um, they're not 
that important to me. I recognize them as a oh um, as an important intellectual distinction, but as a matter of practice, um, the uh, the notion of incarnation, the notion that God um, so loved the world, that God felt uh, such empathy for human beings and their struggle and their suffering, that God chose to take on human form, to experience all the sorts of sufferings and frustrations that we experience, to have them fully, and to choose to allow God's self in human form to be um, sacrificed to human frailty. Was Christianity for you an essential part of your upbringing, or was, was your calling to be a minister something that happened to you uh, late in life, or later in life? Mm, no, it was it was early, um, and uh, it was part of my emerging sense of self as an adolescent that I had to work out because my way of being Christian is different from in in many important respects from the way of being Christian in which I was raised. And you were raised in in what denomination? Roman Catholic. Uh, Roman Catholic. So let me ask you this. How do you explain to your congregation and to yourself um, that there is all this love of God and love from God that you talk to us about at a time when the Hamas-Israel war is raging, Ukraine is under di- in dire straits and having been attacked by Russia? Mm-hmm. There's all, there are all these issues of inequality and poverty both here in our country and around the world. How do you reconcile all that? And I would just like to punctuate Bill's question with often those things are done in the name of God. They sure are. And, um, well, in the name of God first, um, and obviously if I'd called on time, I could give this more elaboration, but um, anything that can be a tool can be a weapon, right? Um, and r- religion is, it, it's not unfair to call it a tool because it, it serves us more than it serves God. It serves us as a way of understanding and, and, and in its best self, trying to uh, share understanding. Um, <clears throat> Bill, what I said to a gathering of uh, Christian community leaders, Christian pastors and rabbis uh, a week or so ago, when asked, how will I celebrate Christmas this year? What what are the focal points? I offered two things. One, um, the folk singer um, John McCutcheon, M-C-C-U-T-C-H-E-O-N, I think. John McCutcheon has a song called Christmas in the Trenches, which is about that Christmas Eve in World War One when German troops and Allied troops came out of their trenches to play soccer under the, you know. And, um, and a poem by Madeleine L'Engle called First Coming. Um, so you can look those up and understand how I'll have a merry little Christmas. Reverend Michael McSherry, we wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. We thank you for being such an integral, important part of our community, and we thank you for being with us on a regular basis, even if you occasionally join us a little late. 
<laughs> Back at you, Bill. Thank you. Merry Thank Christmas you so much. Merry Christmas. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on North. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm, and I'm Bill Newman. <laughs> I think that that microphone was on, but that was Bill Newman. And in fact, we are here with Professor from Smith, uh, Carrie Baker, who, of course, is uh, an iconic figure in this region on matters involving gender, reproductive rights, and, well, basic principles of fairness. Hello, Carrie Baker. Hi. How are you, Bill? Buzz. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're all. <laughs> no, we're all mixed up today. <laughs> I, I think, is somebody, please pass the acid, because the things are not going well here in the, but hello, I am Buzz, and you yes, are Carrie. I am. And who do we have with us? So I am really thrilled today to have Odile Cooney, who is um, a former student of mine. She is a French-American graduate student studying social policy in Paris with a focus on feminism, constitutional law, and voting rights. So Odile grew up in France, but her grandmother lives up in West Waitley, and she spent summers here when she was growing up, and I met her in... Let's see, I think it was the fall of 2021 when she took my gender law and policy class. And she's been on this show in the past, right after Texas passed their abortion ban. I remember, and I remember how articulate she was in thinking, oh my God, there's a Carrie Baker clone. In <laughs> <laughs> so welcome, Odile. Thank you so much. It's great 
to be here. Absolutely. So um, I wanted to first ask you about, I know that you interned on Capitol Hill uh, with the House Rules Committee, whose ranking member was Representative Jim McGovern. And from, from the outside, Congress appears to be extremely divided and dysfunctional. What was your experience being on the Hill? Um, on the personal level, it was wonderful. I met many great people and I learned so much about how Congress works, how lawmaking works, rules, um, procedures. But to be honest, um, I think the the vision that um, outsiders have of Congress is is very much based in reality and it is an extremely dysfunctional institution. Um, I was there during the debt limit crisis yeah. when Republicans were holding the economy hostage to get, you know, different um, concessions out of the executive and Democrats. And a lot of the time, even though it was a, a, a wonderful experience on a personal level, you, I, I, I was wondering what I was doing here and how and whether this was the best way to help people to mm-hmm. to act um, because I, I think it's it's really really difficult and it's um and it's it's such a yeah a deadlocked institution yeah yeah and we're about to face another budget crisis mm-hmm. in January it's, it's non-ending it's really discouraging I feel like it 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 you know it, especially with a new speaker and of course when. You were there. He wasn't there. No, it, it was, was Kevin the, McCarthy. It was the quote-unquote better, the more better functional one. speaker. Yes. And now still very dysfunctional. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. the grown-up in the room, huh? Yeah. Right. That yeah. was him. It's kind of sad. So, Odile, um, I know you follow abortion politics in the United States very closely. I do. The U.S. rollback of abortion rights has shocked people across the world. I, for Ms. Magazine, I interview people around the world, and they're often like, what the heck's happening there? I'm curious about what French people are saying about it and think about That's it. That's a great question. That's a very timely question. It is. Yeah. Um, we view what's going on in the States a little bit, I mean, with great shock, and we kind of have this vision that, of the United States as a dystopia and kind of it's inima- unimaginable to us mm-hmm. that this would happen, that rights would be rolled back um, in, in such a way. And um, yeah, we find it really shocking. I'm just going to just impute that constitutional rights would be rolled back, especially yes. in light with what President by, Macron has suggested. By the judiciary, France. especially by, un- by unelected officials. Yeah. How has... Uh, France reacted. Has this influenced politics in France? It has. So after the Dobbs decision, there was a push by um, some elected officials in the National Assembly to constitutionalize the right to an abortion, which has been legal um, since 1974. Right. But this time in 2022, it was added to the Constitution. And um, abortion in France is legal up to 14 weeks, and then after that, there is an exception for medical emergencies, um, um, problems with the fetus, and it's very widely available. Right. It um, it can be um, done by um, doctors, by uh, midwives, and um, it's not 
like in the states where you have all these hurdles to get through. And it's covered by health insurance. Oh, yeah. 100 um, percent yeah. reimbursed by Social Social Security. And there's even um, government website um, called abortion.gov. Um, so people can access abortions. There are also incentives for doctors to perform abortions. Um, so... Yeah. I just want to clarify what, what you said, just in case anyone didn't understand. There is, I think it's going to be official official next year. I'm not quite sure, but I think there's, there's going to be a constitutional provision that guarantees the right to abortion to everyone in France. Yeah, it, it's, it's um, been enshrined into law for a year now. It's been a year. Oh, that's funny. I thought it was next year. And was there opposition by the right? There was a little opposition um, just because uh, technically, uh, and this is true, abortion was already a constitutional guarantee um, through European law. Mm. So mm-hmm. you, um, EU? EU law, yes. Yeah. Right. So, so since 2001, abortion ha- is a constitutional right, but we wanted it explicitly enshrined in the French constitution and not through European treaties. Right. And um, so that was the only resistance there was towards yeah. it. But it's a, it, it's an extremely consensual issue. I don't think anybody is seriously um, questioning the right to an abortion right. in France. Right. Um, right, left, everybody, everybody agrees that that's a right that should be protected. Right, right, right. So I want to shift to the United States. I know you closely follow the impact of Dobbs on women and pregnant people in the United States. Can you talk about the recent case of Kate Cox and the challenges to the Texas abortion ban? Mm-hmm. So there have been a few cases challenging SB8, which is the Texas abortion ban that bans abortion after um, six weeks, so after uh, the fetal heartbeat. And these cases... And and there's also a ban more generally uh, uh, beginning at fertilization in Texas. Um, And there there are very narrow exceptions for um, when the health of the woman is, is in... Uh, it was threatened, yeah. um, but they're they're not very clearly written. And so Kate Cox, um, in one case, and then uh, Amanda Zorowski in another case, sued the state of Texas, of the state of Texas, to clarify their rights. So they're not even suing um, to have the whole law thrown away. They just want to clarify the rights to know when, in what circumstances, they're able to have an abortion. So Kate Cox. Um, had complications from her pregnancy was her third pregnancy after multiple C-sections and she sued and tried to um, um, get um, district court um, to enjoin the law and authorize an abortion. And right after the judge granted that injunction and granted um, her the right to get an abortion, the attorney general um, immediately appealed and sent a letter to her and her medical practitioners telling yeah. her that she could be sued and she would be liable um, if she were to get an abortion. Right. Um, all, all of this we should point out while she's carrying a non-viable fetus. That's what's going to happen. This was outrageous what happened here. Right. Oh, absolutely. This is not, um, as some people have tried framing it, an issue of protecting life because this fetus is non-viable. They, right. This is about control. Right. Th- this is about sending a message, telling women whatever 
semblance of autonomy that you think you have, you do not. Mm-hmm. The government decides if what you do with your body, right. if you if you carry the government decides if the government decides that you should carry a non-viable fetus and put your life in danger, then you will have to do that. Right. Right. Yeah. And it got appealed up to the Texas Supreme Court and the Texas Supreme Court said that uh, overturned the injunction Mm -hmm. and said she couldn't get the abortion. So she had to flee the state. Yeah, she had to go out of state. And um, lawyers for the state of Texas said that instead women should, uh, Kate Cox should have sued her doctor. Right. Because that's what they're trying to do, pit pit women against their doctors. Yeah. Um, Doctors who, by the way, have been chilled from exercising, um, from, from, um, um, doing abortion from providing abortion care because they are scared of being sued because they're scared of losing their medical license. And even in these cases where, you know, you don't really know if the law accepts or, um, is okay with you getting an abortion, doctors don't do it because they're too scared of being sued. Yeah, the penalty is 99 years in jail. Yeah. A doctor's not going to take a chance, and especially when, you know, Ken Paxton clearly wants to go after any doctor. The attorney, Absolutely. Any, the attorney general. Of yeah, the attorney general. Go after any doctor that provides life-saving medical care to people later in pregnancy. Yeah. And and the other case, Zorowski went all the way up to the Texas Supreme Court and was argued just like a month ago, and it was... Incredible. I listened to the oral arguments, and the state was basically arguing that that women should sue their doctors rather than the state, that it's not the state's fault, it's the doctor's bad decisions, but then the state won't clearly define what this medical exception includes. No, and the, and the, the medical board, the te- Texas Medical Board, yeah. also doesn't want to clarify that. Yeah. Yeah. And and the the oral arguments are absolutely heart-wrenching because they have women who have been through traumatic events um oftentimes with um pregnancies that they they wanted. Yeah. Um they've have had to go through traumatic events because they were forced to carry this abortion the to carry these pregnancies to term. Right. Right. I remember when Roe was decided, I I said at the time that I was really worried about the impact of the decision on people carrying pregnancies to term because of medical emergencies like we've seen in Texas. But I, at the t- I said at the time I was less worried about the impact on people seeking abortions because of access to abortion pills. And, you know, one area that I um, have followed very closely in my coverage with Ms. Magazine is the underground network of abortion pills. And it has... Um, uh, it has really thrived um, after Dobbs. And um, so we're, we're here today. Okay, we're here today with Odile Cooney, who is my former student and now a graduate student in social policy in France, in Paris. And she is um, follows abortion politics here in the United, United States very closely and is writing on that topic. It is just so fascinating. We're going to take a break. We will be right back and continue this conversation. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. 
Get local business news, trends, and information. Be in the know with Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Business West connects the region's business community in print, online, and in person. Business West is published bi-weekly, plus get daily e-newsletters. Business West annual awards programs spotlight excellence, healthcare heroes, women of impact, difference makers, and 40 under 40. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're continuing conversation with Carrie Baker. This is a really fascinating conversation. Okay. Okay. Um, so, Odile, um, I want to go back to talking about France mm -hmm. and what's happening in France. Tell me, um, so has the constitutional amendment been finally approved or is it, what's the status of it? No, it's going to go into effect next year. Mm -hmm. um, has to be approved by an administrative court, um, administrative council. Um, so uh, it can you, you know, be constitutionalized, have the constitutional text ready to go. Um, but it was, it was um, approved by the National Assembly last year, and it's going to go into effect. It's uh, really it's, an it's interesting. Going to pass it, next year. It's an interesting and laborious um, process in France, and, and it looks like Macron has said that he doesn't have any doubt. But after this administrative judge approves of the language so that it's consistent with constitutional language, then it goes back to the assembly. Each chamber has to pass it by a three-fifths supermajority. Mm -hmm. And then Macron, of course, said that he's going to sign it. What's really interesting, when we talk about what Europe has said, which is Europe has uh, reproductive rights uh, embodied, encoded in its constitution, right. uh, the European Parliament, nevertheless, Hungary bans it, which yeah. is a member. Poland bans it and has really harsh consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, so that certain member states can do something different. Um, so what France is trying to do is codify it. Um, thankfully, thank you, France. Yeah. Um, so that it's once and for all part of their constitution. It's, it's hard to enforce European Union law, but there are um, uh, penalties for Hungary and for Poland for not respecting these um, these requirements, these EU requirements, so uh, financial penalties, yeah, financial penalties, but it's always good to have it codified into national law. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to come back to the United States. And I know that you, one of the areas that you study are voting rights. And I've noticed that states banning abortion are also the same states with extreme gerrymandering and voter suppression Mm -hmm. laws. Reproductive rights advocates are responding in these states with ballot initiatives. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So since Dobbs, there have been seven ballot initiatives. Um... Some to remove um, anti-choice language from um, the Constitution or, um, you know, just laws and some to codify the right to an abortion in um, state constitutions. And so all of these seven state ballot measures um, went in the pro-choice directions, even in states where even in Republican states and even in extremely gerrymandered states. So this is an issue that people care about Mm -hmm. and that is that people care about across um, political affiliation, um, across the political spectrum. And it's not as people try to frame it um, a a Democratic issue. It's really Republicans care about abortion. Republican women care about abortion. Yeah, I think a good example is Ohio, which is a very red state. And very gerrymandered state as well. Right, gerrymandered state. And in November, they passed a ballot initiative legalizing abortion that basically mirrors Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. And the Republican governor in that state is trying to you know, find ways not to have that go into effect. But, you know, the fact of the matter is 59% of the voters in this ruby red state voted in favor of abortion rights. But a lot of states don't have ballot initiatives like Texas. No. um, And a lot of these states are red states, which Mm -hmm. try to limit participation, political participation. And I think that also that goes the gerrymandering and the um, limiting of abortion rights that they go hand in hand because um, it's it's all it's a way of trying to control people of trying to impose a vision that is not popular mm-hmm. um, on elected um, on citizens and there are some ballot measures in states that are red or red leaning and um, that might pass because people care about abortion even in red states yeah yeah I, I looked um, looked up what were the states that were likely to have ballot initiatives next November mm-hmm. and they include states like Arizona, Nevada, Montana, Nebraska, Florida, Missouri, Arkansas and maybe even South Dakota. All of these states activists on the ground are organizing to put ballot measures on the November 2024 um, ballot to get abortion legalized in those states. And and many of them actually ban abortion or heavily restrict abortion. Yeah. So to me, that's encouraging. It's it like is. direct democracy is taking back control of this issue. Absolutely. That said, there are all these states like Mississippi and Texas that don't allow ballot initiatives that have heavily gerrymandered legislatures. And we're not going to get abortion rights this way. Oh, yeah. And the whole and the whole rationale of Dobbs was, well, Put uh, let this let the states decide this yeah. issue. Put the issue in the hands of the states, and that's not possible in certain states because yeah. of because they're so heavily gerrymandered and it's so hard to amend a state constitution and for direct democracy to even happen. Yeah. You know. Yeah, Alito in his decision, I remember, wrote uh, the people should decide this issue, 
And but people aren't deciding. And, in and, and it's interesting because in many states, they don't let the people decide exactly. the issue. Uh, and I mean, I guess eventually the people are going to have to realize they need to get these guys out of office who are not doing what they want them to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long that's going to take. I think about like the state of Texas. But I must say the Zorowski case... I imagine is convincing a lot of oh, people yeah. I think that they need change. It's it's the silver lining that is to a horrible, horrible situation. Um, but it it does allow people who didn't really understand what the implications were to know what's happening. Yeah, this Absolutely. is a wonderful conversation, and I just I want to end the conversation by asking you, Carrie Baker, a question. It's the end of the year; the semester is over. You're in intercession right now. What does it mean for a professor to be having a conversation like this with a former student, mm-hmm. one that you watched uh, grow mm-hmm. um, uh, together with, uh, with you on issues that you care deeply about? What does it mean to a professor to see that? Well, I always say one, one of the most favorite things of my job are staying in touch with my students after they graduate, following their trajectory out into the world, seeing the ways in which they go out and make an impact. It's so rewarding. And I I stay in touch with a lot of my students. Often these inner terms are having coffee at various coffee shops around town with Mm -hmm. students who are back in town or back visiting or, or, you know, at other times during reunions. And it's it's tremendously uh, rewarding to be able to stay in touch and and, you know, for me, I'm, you know, getting on in years. It gives me hope for the future to have smart, young feminist women who are continuing these fights for women's rights into the future. And it's more important now than ever with everything that's happening in the United States and the world. That is just a great place to leave it. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank you, Adina. Oh, don't be a stranger. And you, Carrie Baker, uh, it's the end of the year, um, and uh, you, you come in frequently and just... Uh, you don't just edify us. You, 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 uh, you're a moral rudder we can rely on. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to be right back with Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner of Greenfield, um, who will be mayor for another two weeks, if that. And uh, we've got a lot to talk to her about. You don't get to play God, man. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Pedestrian safety is on the mind of Northampton City Councilors. The councilors discussed the issue at their meeting last night and unanimously voted to accept a gift of $200,000 from Smith College to further improve pedestrian safety in the area. Northampton Mayor Jean-Louise Shera. Thank them for this gift of $200,000 to support the design and the initial construction costs and construction administration for roadway improvements um, in this area. Two more pedestrians were struck by vehicles just last week, and Kat Queenie of Amherst is wondering why the process is taking so long to make the streets safer. It's great that the city is working with Smith to take action now, but was it really necessary for two people to be seriously injured over a year apart before we could make that happen? The mayor's office and officials at the college say they share a deep commitment to take decisive, well-informed action for the safety of the community. More than 50 Northampton High School students staged an early walkout of school on Tuesday in protest of the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, demanding a permanent ceasefire to the conflict and strongly criticizing Israel's actions in Gaza since the war's outbreak, saying it was tantamount to genocide. First Night Northampton is back Sunday with even more performers and venues participating. In total, 22 separate stages in 20 different locations will host events, 
Events begin at noon with a focus on kid and family-friendly events, including two sessions at the Academy of Music by the young acrobats and circus performers who train at Show Circus Studio in East Hampton. The traditional downtown fireworks take place at 6.15. For today, it'll be mostly sunny, highs 34 to 38. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 16 to 22. And the electric Saturday, mostly cloudy, highs in the lower 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 1015 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Love is unconditional. It looks like showing up, giving someone a fresh start, a compassionate ear, or even just a smile between strangers. At the Salvation Army, love gives beyond situation and season. While lights are sparkling and temperatures are dropping, you can be the difference for a family in need right in your local community. Your donation puts presents under the tree today and food on the table all year long. Warm hearts and homes beyond the Christmas season by dialing pound 250 on your phone and saying the keyword, the Salvation Army, at the prompt. Again, that's pound 250 and your keywords are the Salvation Army. You'll have the opportunity to receive a one-time auto-dialed text message from iHeartMedia that links to a donation form. Help a neighbor in need throughout the holidays and beyond with the Salvation Army. Just dial pound 250 on your mobile phone and say the keyword Salvation Army. It's easy to give. Dial pound 250 and use those keywords, the Salvation Army. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. Bill, I think I want to give a nod to you. I, um, as I look back at this past year and, and think about uh, what's been great about being on the radio, we have had elected officials who, as being committed to transparency and being open about what they do, have appeared on a regular basis on this show um, some predate Talk to Talk. Back in your morning show, Bill, you always had elected officials coming. I did in my afternoon show as well. And they have been more than willing to share with listeners their thinking and updating people on what's in the hopper. And um, among them has been Greenfield's Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner, who without fail has come on this show uh, regularly and shared with uh, us and with listeners, um, her thoughts and her efforts uh, on behalf of her constituents. And today is no exception. Here we are at the end of the year. And who's here but Roxanne Wiedergartner. Hello, Mayor. Hi. Hello there. Um, this is fun. 
and uh, I'm going to miss it. So, you know, just have me on at some point as a garden variety citizen. Well, uh, we would love later to do on. that. We will certainly take you up on that. Thank you. So, um, there, uh, before some... we go, wait sure. a minute, wait a minute. I just want to, I'll be real quick. Buzz, I want to thank you again for that wonderful debate that we had at the beginning of the campaign. Uh, it was, you did such a nice job on that. And unfortunately, it was the only one <laughs> after that um, opportunity. Uh, uh, Mayor-elect Disorger turned down all the other opportunities to appear, you know, in front of the camera with other people or with me by other people, turn down other people's opportunities. So, but anyway, that's that's water over the dam. I just want to say it was great, and I'm glad that you and the recorder and GCC and GCTV, everybody got put it together. Well, it thank helpful. you for that. Thank you. I'll tell you, it was the best seat in the house, and, um, and <laughs> <laughs> it's really an honor to be able to moderate uh, such things. Well, I, I think at the end I said, boy, that was fun, and you said, you thought that was fun? <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like me. So let's talk a little anyway, bit of business here. So yeah. Wednesday night, yeah. the city council rejected your final board appointments, um, claiming that the new mayor should be making those board appointments instead. So your reaction to that? Well, it it was at once, you know, understandable, I suppose, but also kind of silly. Um, there was a hint that somehow or other I'd gone out and beat the bushes for people that were going to throw monkey wrenches somewhere. Um, so that is not exact at all what happened. It's hard enough to get people, and I might want to talk about this before the end of the meeting too, but, or our thing, it's hard enough to get people to come forward to serve on boards. And the reason there were so many in December is a lot of the board appointments um, were staggered terms and they, a lot of them come up as vacancies at, at the end of December and at the end of, uh, towards the end of June. Uh, so we had quite a few um, boards and commissions that needed people uh, on them, and we kept putting out, you know, bulletins on Facebook and in other ways, the website. And fortunately, several people stepped up to the plate who were qualified to be on each of the boards that they put forward. So uh, I am mayor until I'm not, <laughs> which will be midnight on January 1st. And um, then, so I simply was doing my job and honoring the wishes of the people who wanted to serve on these boards by putting them forward. Um, no different than I've done in many other meetings over the last four years. Uh, board appointments, as I say, come up uh, often uh, in a year, um, you know, especially in December and especially towards the end of June. So. Uh, be that as it may, um, the city council did what the city council did. And I don't really have any other comment on that. Okay. <laughs> you, they didn't seem to get it. <laughs> right. Mayor uh, Roxanne. Uh, I will say this. Mayor-elect uh, DeSorger has plenty of opportunity over the next four years to put people on boards, believe me, uh, because they come on, they go off. Many don't end up serving their generally three-year terms, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And many of them are really important boards that could possibly, because of the delay, so there was a ramification that should be discussed, um, possibly because of the delay, they can't go, uh, it's too late for January, which means they'll only come in in February, 
Um, and some of those boards would be without a quorum for until March because there's a 35-day waiting, 32, 35, somewhere around there, waiting period before they get sworn in. So um, that's the ramification of it. No quorum on some of those boards. I know there was a discussion about that, but um, that's the way it is. Have you been in touch with uh, mayor-elect disorder since the election? Oh, sure. Um, we've had a, uh, well, she's on the uh, uh, tax increment financing committee, so we meet, um, have met twice now, or maybe even three times since the election. Um, and, but, you know, that's a function. I'm there as mayor, she's there as chair of Ways and Means for the time being, uh, as recent as um, yesterday. So, or, yeah, yesterday. Um, but we had a transition meeting last Friday uh, with her and her chief of staff, um, Keith Barnacle. So uh, it went well, and I, you know, I had a lot to put for, I had a lot to, to uh, leave behind with her. Um, and, um, and then I have thought of some other stuff. So in addition to that, in addition to that meeting, if we have a chance to talk this week, fine, but I will leave a memo behind about some other things that have come up. Okay. Um, Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner, you you struck a deal with the Greenfield Savings Bank to sell the library building and to grant, I think, seven easements for parking on a new library parking lot. On Wednesday, you learned that granting those easements violates the library grant agreement and the council, council didn't act on it. What... What's going to happen with the sale? Uh, I'm, I'm confused as a reader about where things are at. Yeah, I did not think the, um, well, actually, I hadn't read that article. Was it in today's paper? I thought I read the whole paper. Maybe it was online. Um, I didn't read it online. I read the actual newsprint. Um, I, I don't, there's no, I think that it, uh, the, the deal will go through um, as long as there isn't a lot of, um, Sturm and Drang about it. Um, I was completely unaware of the of what apparently the grant has said about ensuring that there is parking. The current library, the new library, took over a large city parking lot and uh, the old fire station, but we knew the old fire station was going to come down to make a, a new parking lot behind the, the behind and beside the, it's like an L-shaped lot now, uh, behind and beside the um, uh, Levitt-Hovey House, the old library, and adjacent to the new library. And there's a city parking lot back there. And I want to emphasize, it is a city parking lot. It is not a library parking lot and was never intended to be a library parking lot, any different than the one that was there that the library sits on now. Uh, which also never had dedicated spots to it. So yes, of course, we always anticipated that that parking lot, which has 69 spaces in it, would be available to library patrons, but would not be exclusively available just to library patrons. We control that property, when I say we, the city, so by virtue of that, the mayor's office. Um, and when Greenfield Savings Bank came to us and wanting to purchase the Levitt Hovey House and completely renovate it and put it on the tax rolls um, it, and make it all the more beautiful 
than it already is because you know it's it needs a great deal of maintenance even now and um, I of course was delighted to be able to work with them on that and one of the stipulations of the purchase and sale agreement again because I thought I was allowed to do that not not having nothing to do with the grant um, I was informed by you know our lawyer that of course it would be uh, considered a you know a conveyance of city property to a private entity and therefore it would have to go before the council so that was understood I didn't have a problem with that um, the city council in the past has a uh, few months has said very openly the prior to the savings bank taking a uh, bringing coming forward as a result of an RFP um, had said this we should not be held we should not keep this building uh, and have to do the upkeep on it you know they preferred us to sell it so I think it was only the <laughs> the fact that this uh, stipulation in the grant came forward and so we're working through that unfortunately the CEO of um, of um, Greenfield Savings Bank is on vacation out of the state and won't return until next week. So while I'm sure he's aware of this issue that's come up, um, we won't be able, I won't be able to sit down with him and, and talk to him about it and see what he wants to do. The library building, uh, Mass um, Board of Library Commissioners, our representative there, has said that she would accept and they would accept seven on-street parking spaces dedicated to library patrons uh, in lieu of the seven that the Greenfield Savings Bank would be taking. So that's something that I've already started working on with the DPW. Um, there is space in front of the new library and face space in front of the Levitt Hubby House. And we can probably accommodate nearly all seven. So, um, but I, I think I need to speak with, um, with the Greenfield Savings Bank, obviously, and try to work out with them whether they really do need seven. Do they need seven or would they be happy with four, you know, or something of that nature? So there's a little bit of horse trading that still has to go on <laughs> in a very short week next week. So I'll make sure that that happens because the sale really should go through. So, Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner, first, I want to thank you and join in Buzz's comments. You have been available, you've been transparent, you've been with us on a regular <laughs> basis for Mayor's Monday, and we really appreciate you taking hard questions from us at times and also, sure. and also being, I think, forthright with us, uh, and we really appreciate that in a government governmental official. So, I want to thank you thank for you. that. Oh, well, thank you, Bill. I'd also like to ask you something returning to uh, an area that you and Buzz were just exploring, and that was the transition. And you said that you had met with uh, uh, Jenny DeSorger, the incoming mm -hmm. mayor. And I'm wondering, from a personal point of view, having had to live through a contentious uh, re-election campaign, whether or not that was awkward or businesslike, how would you describe it? You know, I, I didn't find it awkward at all. Um, and I and yes, it was businesslike. I mean, I've known Jenny for a number of years. She's not someone unknown to me. Um, we served on the planning board for several years together. So, um, and then of course she's been counselor for the last four. 
And um, certainly she came in when I came in as mayor and was, you know, we were very friendly to her as the opponent, uh, as the precinct three city councilor. Uh, she had an opponent. And so, you know, we were favorable to councilor disorder joining. So there's no reason for it to be terribly awkward, uh, except for the fact that the c campaign was more contentious than it really needed to be, and that did not come from my campaign, came from theirs. Um, so uh, Diana Schindler, our finance director and interim uh, chief of staff was there as well. So she was able to, you know, chime in when she felt like it. Um, and uh, no, I didn't, I didn't find it awkward. I, I'm happy to, I want to make as smooth a transition as possible. What I, what I would hope is that the projects that we have going on going forward are picked up and carried out, um, you know, well by this mayor. And I don't really have a sense of how well she'll be able to govern. It's very difficult right now. This is a job that's 24 seven and no one knows how hard it is until they're in it. <clears throat> Mayor Roxanne Reeder, we are going to take a break. When I come back, I'd like to yeah. ask you uh, in retrospect to reflect back on the your tenure as mayor of Greenfield and um, what might you have done differently? What are you particularly proud of? Let's just do a little wrap up right after this. Okay. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. How do I find local news and local talk for the Valley? Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hi, this is Jane Wolfe, Senior Vice President of Residential Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous new year. Hi, this is Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. Hi, this is Julie and Ashley, wishing, wishing everyone a, a cheerful, stress-free holiday season and a delightful new year. Hi, I'm Brendan O'Connor. I'm Ethan McCandless. And I am Luke Parsons. From the Credit Department at Greenfield Cooperative Bank, happy holidays. Hi, this is Teresa from the 63 Federal Street Office of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. 
I would like to wish all of our customers and their families a Christmas that's merry and bright and a happy new year filled with love, health, and happiness. Hi, I'm Dawn. And I'm Erica from the Florence Branch. Of Northampton Cooperative Bank. We, we would, would like, like to extend our best wishes to our customers, families, and friends for a happy holiday season and a happy new year. Cheers. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner of Greenfield. And it is that time of year where we look over our shoulder at the year we're just completing. We are wrapping up, in this case, an entire term as the mayor of the great city of Greenfield. And we have to ask, Mayor, um, in retrospect, um, what are you particularly proud of as mayor of Greenfield? And what do you think you might have done differently? Okay, well, I am proud of every single day that I served as mayor, because at some point each day there was work to do. I did it. I got things done or stuff done. And um, the things I'm most proud of are the fact that we have uh, a brand new library, which was nothing but a parking lot <laughs> with a plan to put a library on it uh, and the funding in place to do that um, uh, at the beginning of my term. And there were bumps along the way. You would have thought that would have done everything. That would have been it. You know, we just build a library and, and we were blessed with great weather when we started building it all through the years. So it, it moved along quite fast and it was on, on, budget, on time and un, uh, slightly under budget. So those are all good things because that leaves a little money left over for the new librarian and her staff to, you know, figure out now after they've been in there for a few months what they need that they didn't that they don't have. Uh, not so much in terms of the building itself, but things that are helping them utilize the building better. So uh, the library, the fire station is in great shape, but it took a while to find a spot for it. Because we were building the library, we had to move the old fire station. Well, we didn't. We had to tear down the old fire station and move the firefighters into temporary quarters, parking lot on Hope Street across from uh, adjacent to the court and uh, across from Hope and Olive, just to put a location on it for you. Um, putting up a temporary fire station is um, a very interesting thing to do, and I would have never thought I would have I would have never thought I would have done that any more than I would have thought I would have had to have gotten us safely through a pandemic. So it's hard to say. I'm very proud of the work that the city of Greenfield did during the pandemic. Um, I didn't know what to do, but I had great people working for me, particularly in public safety and police and fire, who knew exactly what, well, not so much about a global pandemic, but what to do in emergency situations. And we just kept working on it, going by the science, going by um, recommendations, and eventually the state government caught up with us. I am proud of the fact that we out here in Western Massachusetts sometimes don't wait for permission to do things. We just do them. And um, and nobody ever knows. So <laughs> we stood up an emergency operations center when my mayor friends in the eastern part of the state were still <laughs> scratching their heads about what to do. And I know all those so, things are important. I know we could go on with that list, but just because of time, 
Got to ask yeah. the question. Anything you would have done differently as mayor? Um, well, if I could have stopped the pandemic from happening, I would have done that. Um, I don't think so. I really don't. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I, since you mentioned that earlier before we came on air, I was I kept trying to think, is there anything I would have done differently? Um, I, I'm not being um, haughty here. I really can't think of anything. Well, there you go. Uh, You're answering my question. So, yeah, from your there was experience. a lot of work to do, and the work got done. And um, and there's still projects going forward that I am truly sorry I'm not going to be able to see to fruition. But I have certainly been informed by the fire chief that I will be there for the ribbon cutting, which is, should happen sometime in March on the fire station. Oh, that is nice. Um, it's looking great right now. So, well, all right. Uh, well, I've got one more big question from your experience. Yeah. Uh, four years as being mayor of, of Greenfield. What advice do you want to give Ginny DeSorger as she begins her tenure on January 2nd? Well, um, I think what I want to say is I have left you a good city, um, uh, a, a city in good hands, you know, in, in, a, in a good place. There are uh, financial hurdles we have to get through. Um, and um, the budget seasons, budgets are going to be tight over the next few years, so we have to figure out how to judiciously use our money and make sure that every department is funded adequately, not just one, and uh, at the expense of others. And uh, it's a tough job, so come to work every day, ready to do as much as you possibly can do for the city in that day. Because there'll be more work there tomorrow. <laughs> Mayor, there's been a lot written and spoken about how uh, the incoming mayor has been a member of the council and therefore things are going to be better between the elect the uh, executive branch and the legislative branch in Greenfield. But you've put your finger on a very sore point that's going to be front and center very quickly, which is the adequacy of the funds available to fund departments. you have some thoughts on how that is going to work out? No, I don't. I'm unfortunately, I'm not working on the budget now. Everybody else is. Um, so um, the capital budget's been done. Um, their capital uh, implementation committee that will make recommendations to the council on funding or to the mayor uh, on what to fund um, are just now being set up. They're a little behind for reasons that I don't need to discuss. Uh, and um, so the operating budget is next. And I know that every department head has been working on the operating budget. The parameters given by the finance department are you don't have a lot of money, level fund absolutely everything you possibly can. Some things are contractual and they have built-in increases, not the least of which is salaries uh, for those in unions. Um, all seven unions, that's another thing I'm proud of, all seven union contracts got done on my watch. Well, I, I just have to interrupt you only because we're almost out of time, but I just want to say to you, Roxanne Wiedergartner, and thank you so yeah. much. Thank you for your service as mayor. I know uh, I'm wishing you, I'm wishing your family the best of 2024 and, of course, best wishes to the city of Greenfield. Thank you, Mayor. 
Well, I have some work to do at home, so I, uh, you know. It'll get done now. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) have a great Christmas weekend. Everybody have a wonderful Environmental nonprofit, Ocean River Institute, is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. WHMP Northampton and